For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the MLS Multiplex Podcast. It is Drew here uh, with Josh today. Connor could not join us. I think he's a very busy man with classes and things. So Connor's getting a much needed rest today after being the trooper editing for us and all the time. So Connor, hope you're enjoying your vacation, bud, and we will talk to him again next week. But for now, throwing it back, uh, just me and Josh today. Josh, it's been, I think it's been seven days, and it's been it's been an eventful seven days, and we will talk about it. We had one of the craziest soccer games I think I've ever watched and just nonsense happening in the soccer world between, I think, have your, I don't know if Euros have started today or not, but we're getting ready for international. I know some international friendlies were played. We're getting ready for some big-time international soccer. So... Aside from all the soccer, um, or including that, how has your past week been? How's teaching, coaching going for you? How's, how's it been for you so far? It was a very eventful week. Um, yeah, I, I ended up teaching uh, the rest of last week. And then, like you mentioned, crazy, crazy soccer game on Sunday night. Um, and I started a new job today. So I just have my, my first... My first day at the new job felt like the first day of school. Um, you also know how, like, on syllabus day, like, you don't do anything, right? Like, like in high school, yeah. like in college, it's different. It's hey, this is the syllable, <laughs> the syllabus. Okay, now we're starting class. Yeah, it was kind of like high school where, like, you just take a bu- care of a bunch of logistical stuff. Like, I signed a bunch of paperwork and, you know, got my work email set up and all that, all that mundane stuff. So I didn't really do anything today, but uh, it was my first day nonetheless. Um, I think those are the, that's probably the most eventful things to happen. Uh, as you know, the Hawks are doing fantastic so far since our last, uh, recording, they have clinched a series on the road against the New York Knicks. Trey Young continues to be amazing in the playoffs, which I have to be honest, I did not see coming. I'm always a little worried that he's going to rush his shots and then in turn, you know, be a detriment to the team. That has not been the case at all. Like he's just played lights out. And then of course uh, they took it to the 76ers. Did you watch all the way through like top to bottom that 76ers game? I did. Unfortunately, I thought I could turn it off about the 16 second mark, but I was wrong. That was the worst ending to a win I've ever seen in my life. Like any, any sports team I've ever cared about, like that has got to be the worst like win only because we were winning by so much the entire game, right? Like, it's different when Atlanta scores, you know, Atlanta United scores a game winner in the 94th minute because, like, it was tied the whole time and you figured it was going to draw. So it was like a a surprise, like a nice surprise. Or it's different when the Falcons are hitting a game-winning field goal because they've at least put in the effort for it to be tied and it's been back and forth, what have you. But not this game. The fact that the Hawks were up 26 and then when they stole the ball from uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich with like eight seconds to go and then slammed it, slam dunked, I was like, 
I was like, this cannot be happening right now. So that was that was like the worst way to win a game. Uh, but hopefully tonight, we're uh, we're recording this before before tip off. So hopefully tonight they end up getting another win. It'd be nice to have a chance to sweep at home. Although I still I, I'm not expecting the Hawks to win the series, but we'll see. How was your week? Uh, obviously. You haven't been. I assume you haven't been doing too much with Nashville, right? Since you know, you no no games are happening. There's not a ton of content to be made. Walker Zimmerman did just get called up to the U.S. squad, though, which we will we'll talk about later. But how's that been going? How's life treating you up in uh, up in Tennessee? Yeah, it's been good. Um, the Hawks, like you said, that has been the main source of my focus. We're recording this earlier because I slacked um, our group. I said, wait a second, we're going to record during the Hawks game. But okay, let's record it right now. Um, so that's good. Yeah, it's been a pretty chill week in Nashville up until about 30 minutes ago um, when Walker Zimmerman got called up and he'll play Costa Rica on Wednesday, which Randall Leal uh, plays for Costa Rica. So that'll be kind of a Nashville and Nashville battle. Hopefully both of them see the field. Um, we have a lot of friendlies tonight. I think Alistair Johnston with Canada is about to kick off. Um, Anabogadoy with Panama. So pretty much with Nashville, it has been a lot of focusing on the four, well now five, with Walker players representing their countries. Um, you know, so it hasn't been too much getting ready for their next game is in about couple weeks they go to Red Bull. Um, so yeah, Nashville's been pretty cool getting some time to chill after a pretty fast start there. Um, yeah, it's been good. The Hawks, again, been the focus of attention, and we'll see if they get it done tonight. I'm like you. I My goal for the Hawks at the beginning of the season was just to make, to avoid the play-in round at all costs, and anything on top of that is a plus. So the fact that they won a series against the Knicks and the fact that they might actually win a series against the Sixers is more than I expected. And after watching the Nets demolish Milwaukee last night, I'm not sure I'm excited about the next round if the Hawks even make it through they the next round. They did that without James Harden, too. That's <laughs> that insane. That was so bad. That's insane. Hey, one thing we didn't mention. So so Sunday overall was like a pretty good sports day, right? We had, uh, we had the Hawks win on the road. I know where <laughs> yeah. this is going. <laughs> yeah. The Braves won the series against the Dodgers after an embarrassing Friday night game. I don't know if you caught that when Sean Newcomb walked in a couple runs. Um, yeah, Hawks, the U.S. game on Sunday night, Braves. But what happened in the morning before any of that stuff is our beloved Julio Jones got traded. Well, actually, he just got traded up the street from you because he's not going to be at Nissan Stadium, which is where Nashville SC plays. So maybe he's just following you around, Drew. I think you, oh my goodness. So we have our um, weekly content meetings. I think, yeah, I can say this. I'm not doing anything bad, but we meet on Mondays. And, um, you know, the news, I think it was before the news became official, Nashville SC tweeted something about Julio coming to play with the Titans. Um, It was like a wallpaper, you know, like Jones 11 that the soccer team tweeted. And... I they know I'm a Falcons fan, so I just got roasted in that weekly content meeting on Monday. Like, oh man, so Julio's coming to Nashville. I was like, I don't want to talk about it. And they were talking about all this content <laughs> they're gonna plan around Julio. Uh, like, okay, when Julio comes to training camp, uh, we'll be sure to get a jersey swap because he plays in Nashville, not Atlanta anymore. And they just kept emphasizing that fact that he's no longer an Atlanta Falcon. Um, so that was. A rough day. Everyone else in the office is really excited about it, and I'm just sitting there 
watching Hawks highlights because that's the only thing that can muster and encourage me at that point. Um, but that was that was bad. But he's yeah, that's something. But um, yeah, again, had a lot of soccer action and. We had a fun Tuesday news dump in the women's soccer world. This all happened really, really freaking fast. Um, the NWSL is continuing to expand with San Diego, announcing they are getting an NWSL team launching in 2022, along with Angel City FC in Los Angeles, uh, getting into the league that same year. And right after Sacramento fell through in the NWSL, so California is getting another NWSL team. And what's really cool about this is that Jill Ellis will be the president of the team after managing the U.S. Women's National Team, winning a couple World Cups with them. Uh, she'll be coming back at NWSL, which is awesome. Um, but that wasn't the only women's soccer news we had today. We had the USL announcing a USLW league, which I think they were rumored to start a women's soccer league uh, in some aspect with NWSL for a while, and they made it official today. It's sounding like it's going to be a pre-professional league, kind of like a summer league, where um, college players can go play for a summer, get ready for the NWSL and other leagues. And on top of all that, the U.S. Women's National Team plays Portugal on Thursday in a friendly. So this is one of the few weeks we have men's national team playing on Sunday and Wednesday and the women's national team playing on Thursday. So, Josh, we had a lot of women's soccer news um, with the NWSL expanding and just women's soccer kind of growing and another opportunity to see women's national team playing this week. So what are your thoughts on whether it be the USLW League or just NWSL expanding in general, what do you think about women's soccer growing um, in the States as of recently, in the past like 12 hours, it feels like? Well, I'm excited for what San Diego is going to start announcing soon because I believe today Ellis said that we should expect news about a head coach in July. And then, oh, she said July-ish. And then she also mentioned like Crest and other details coming out like in the next couple weeks. So, like you said, this all seems like it's happening pretty fast, and it seems like we're going to get even more San Diego news coming up very soon. But I love the news about the pre-professional league. Um, so I haven't gotten it since this all like came out today, and I had work before this. Um, I haven't really gotten a chance to dive into any of it. So it's not as is this going to be a second division women's league? Or is it starting out as like you said, this kind of like summer, like a, like a, what? What do they do? They they just call it the summer league, right, for the NBA, in uh, the, the league that takes place in Vegas. Is this something like that, or is this, um, kind of a second division? Yeah, the way it's sounding, so I don't know. Um, there are other leagues like this. I think um, certainly women's soccer. I know. I'm totally blanking on the acronyms. There's so many acronyms in the soccer world, but it's. I think it's sounding like it's not too much in competition with the NWSL. Um, just from watching, they had like a big launch thing on YouTube Live and reading some things about it, is that it's very much a thing, a league where people play in um, to eventually get ready for the NWSL. I think someone, maybe someone high up the league, um, was very adamant about trying to get players ready for the professional leagues, whether that's NWSL, WSL in England, or France, Spain, things like that. Um, so I don't think, it doesn't sound like it's going to be too much of a competition. I guess you could call it a second division, which is weird to think because there's not like a USL with NWSL. There's not like how it's MLS, USL. There's not really an NWSL, USL. So maybe this league can do that. Um, 
but it doesn't sound like it's going to be something very competitive with the NWSL. Um, I know they announced a couple leagues with it. Um, I think eight league, eight teams are going to be in it. Um, with I know for our sake, uh, Tormenta FC and Statesboro announced that they're going to be in the league with other teams as well. Um, yeah, it's an exciting time for women's soccer. Um, yeah, I'm excited about it. We'll see how that goes. And then we get the women's national team playing on Thursday. So that's really exciting times for mid soccer. Um, but in addition to all the women's soccer expanding and growing, we had a weird news drop that I was not expecting at all. Uh, Mark Ingram bought stake in DC United, which I thought was pretty weird considering I think he plays in Houston now with the Texans. Um, he bought stake in DC United. The club's now valued at $700 million. Um, so Josh, what do you think about Mark Ingram buying a stake in DC? This feels like a recurring trend with like some big celebrities and other sports leagues getting in on MLS. Yeah. So Mark Ingram, he purchased a ownership stake with, uh, DC United this week. And this is not the first time we've seen an athlete or a prominent celebrity of some kind, uh, purchase a stake in an MLS team. We were just talking about, uh, for example, Alex Ovechkin with the Washington Spirit. But definitely the craziest aspect of this, I think, and this is um, definitely what made the most amount of news, he purchased a stake at what now makes it $710 million. And the, the real reason why that's so big is only two years ago now, Atlanta United was valued as the most wealthy MLS club at $500 million. That was by Forbes in 2019. So it's kind of crazy that in just two years, we're not seeing a club like DC United uh, with their valuation up. And I, you know, I think that's kind of the the name of the game with MLS, right? Like these clubs and their investments seem to be going up and up and up. Um, and it's also kind of strange to be talking about this when considering that we are on the tail end of a pandemic now and the league has had so many financial issues to where they've you know felt the need to redo a couple of CBAs but Drew I want to ask you this with DC now being valued at 700 million do you see this as a positive or a negative and the reason why I think it could be a negative is maybe because we're starting to really blow up the valuations of these clubs. And I'm wondering if there's going to be some sort of burst a couple of years from now when we find out that no, actually these clubs are not worth this much, but what, what do you, what do you take away from this now really high valuation for what is a club that hasn't really been successful in a few years? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think, you know, we hear all the time about kind of outside businesses. I'm not sure there's probably been a history of this in sports, um, but businesses being way overvalued and then it all comes kind of crashing down at the end when I think that evaluation becomes more and more clear and accurate and you hope that isn't the case um, with MLS clubs. Again, I'm not really sure how that all works with how you calculate evaluation, but yeah, like you said, they are valued at $700 million, um, with Mark Eager buying that stake in the club. And yeah, I mean, I think it could be a good thing kind of opening the door for investors to realize that there's money in this league. Um, and 
just giving them, you know, I think a big thing with MLS fans and kind of complaints with owners is that owners aren't putting money into the clubs and that results in, you know, poor poor teams on the field and no one wants to see that. So I think this could open the door with this valuation with a club like DC United that you talked about. When you think of big market, massive brand teams, you don't really think of DC United. You think of Atlanta, Seattle, the Galaxy, things like that. And DC United just hasn't won anything for a very long time. They were dominant there in their early years, but have, haven't really done anything recently. So hopefully this evaluation um, opens the doors and just lets investors and people with a lot of money understand that there is money to be made in this league, um, whether it be, you know, a team like DC, whether it be a team like, you know, um, I don't even know, Sporting, Colorado, or RSL, because RSL is still out there looking for owners. I think the league is still in ownership of that. So hopefully this will just open the door for investors um, to realize there's money to be made in MLS. But again, like you said, there's a possibility that this kind of comes crashing down. And I guess I wonder when you say that you're worried that this valuation isn't wrong, it'll come crashing down and just all, you know, pandemonium will break loose. What do you think that would do for the league if the worst comes to worst in this situation? I mean, it would depend on where the league is at at that point. Uh, I think right now it's on good enough financial standing to where if for some reason something like that was going to happen, you know, we may need to, to worry, but, Years from now, that might not be an issue. Um, and I also think that as the popularity of the league continues to increase, hopefully with whatever new TV deal comes through, that ends up also bringing new fans and bringing more profit into the league. And hopefully with the bump of World Cup in 2026, with the U.S. being a prominent host in that and Canada also hosting as well, you know, we don't really have to worry about that. And that's honestly a factor into why you know, someone like Mark Ingram is purchasing such a, a wealthy stake because they're trying to get in now before before these clubs get way too valuable. Um, and obviously there's such a potential for um, smart investing, I will say, in, in rapid growth between now and, you know, 2026, for example, which now that I'm saying that out loud, that's only five years away. That's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, I... I I don't think it'll be an issue down the road and I understand why the valuations are so high, but it's still kind of crazy. The fact that, like I said, Atlanta was half a billion just two years ago. And now all of a sudden DC is almost 33% higher than that. Like it makes you wonder what's Atlanta at now? What's LAFC at? What's LA galaxy at? Uh, what's inner Miami at for that matter? Because who knows? I, I don't fully understand where all these teams and, you know, someone like Forbes gets all these valuations from or whatever, but it's, it's clearly a league and, and club on the rise. So, I mean, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting thing. Um, again, I didn't see that coming, but we've seen celebrities. I think James Harden still has a stake in uh, the Dino and Dash, like you said, Ovechkin with the Washington Spirit. Um, yeah, there's probably more that I'm totally blanking on, but we've seen... Steve Nash with the Whitecaps, Kevin Durant with the Philadelphia Union. Um, there's probably one more. I probably count Naomi Osaka with North Carolina Courage. Serena with Angel City. Yeah, it's all over the place. Yeah, but who isn't invested in Angel City? Yeah, that's. 
<laughs> That's a better question, which athlete isn't invested in soccer. Um, but yeah, so Mark Ingram, I don't even know if he still plays. Dude, I remember he was so freaking good with Alabama. I don't even know if he still plays football anymore. I think he's with Houston technically with the Texans. But that's just he a was with fun. Uh, Baltimore for the last couple of years, but you're right, he's not with them anymore. Yeah, so that's interesting. We'll see how that pans out in DC United getting another exciting investor, exciting times in Washington with athletes getting on the soccer landscape in DC. But the biggest news I think of the soccer world was the U.S. Men's National Team. Winning the inaugural CONCACAF Nations League. I was about to say CONCACAF (laughs) Champions League. Oh, man. No, unfortunately, no. Um, Winning the inaugural CONCACAF Nations League. The trophy we all want. Um, Yeah, it's a trophy. Put it where you want on significance-wise. But it's a trophy that the United States won, defeating Mexico 3-2, one of the wildest games I've ever seen. But before they got to that, they had to beat Honduras, which they did beat Honduras. 1-0 1-0 to advance to the final against Mexico. This game feels like it was an eternity ago because it feels like that final against Mexico lasted an eternity. Um, but uh, it took a late winner from the U.S. to get that win. Josh, what did you think about it? I know a lot of people were frustrated um, because it was only a one nothing win, which I think now, given that they won the final against Mexico, that's kind of in the pushback in the mirror. But in that initial reaction to the game, a lot of negativity around a win. Was the U.S.'s performance as bad as you think everyone made it seem, given they won, but maybe wasn't a 4 nothing 5-0 thrashing that I think some people expected out of this game? So I want to preface this by saying I did not see any of the first half. I only caught majority of the second half. I was, I was out and away from a TV with the game on, unfortunately. So I didn't get, like, the full, like, 90 minutes, like, everyone's all doom and gloom at the end of this game that being said like the from what i could watch in the second half like i get where people are coming from with with being upset with that initial performance by the u.s i mean there's just no real sense of urgency and you know i some people were upset that they were struggling against honduras struggling to score and i don't blame them for that but at the same time like honduras is pretty good it's not like you know this isn't uh, American Virgin Islands, right? It's not like this like really small CONCACAF team, Suriname, whatever. Uh, this is one of the, the bigger CONCACAF clubs, one of the bigger countries um, soccer-wise, performance-wise. So I think that was more a fault of the U.S. fans coming in with the expectation of, oh, we're going we're gonna to wipe the floor with Honduras, when in reality, like, they're a good team, and we should have expected it to be a grind. That being said, the other side of that is that the U.S. still did not seem to have a sense of urgency. And it was to the point where we're in the final 10 minutes of this game, and I'm sitting there thinking, we're not even going to make it to the final, are we? Like, everybody's talking about how the U.S. has its first chance at silverware. Like, they've got the first competitive games. Ooh, we, we want to see how they stack up against Mecca. And it's like, hold on a second. We've got to make it there first. And they almost didn't. From what I could see, Honduras didn't really create that much. But at the same time, the U.S., with all the attacking talent that they have and with all the coaching that's been done from Burhalter to instill this system where they unlock opponents with the ball, right? Like, that's what he always says. Um, it definitely left a lot to be desired. Did you catch the game on Thursday night? 
Not, I call it bits and pieces of it. Um, yeah, I'm struggling to think of exact moments in that game because I just felt like it was an eternity ago. But that I might think... not be your fault. That's 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 how the game was, <laughs> where it was like nothing was really happening. Oh, uh, Josh yeah. Sargent had that great goal line clearance. Yeah, oh, I saw that on Twitter. That was exciting. Which, when Josh Sargent's highlights is a goal line clearance, that's not the best thing in the world. But I think I kind of I saw a tweet that resonated what you just said about how people, I think, in CONCACAF just assume every game, every final, rather, is going to be U.S.-Mexico. And they were mainly talking about Costa Rica. Um, how I think Costa Rica has made it further in a World Cup more recently than the U.S. and Mexico have. I think they went to a quarterfinal more recently than either country. And there's kind of this assumption that when it comes to CONCACAF, you know, whether it be Gold Cup or now the Nations League, that it's just which team is in their way of it becoming U.S.-Mexico. Um, and I think that kind of discredits these smaller countries like Costa Rica, like Honduras, and also discredits, I think, the U.S. and Mexico for, you know, being in these finals and having to beat good teams. Like, unfortunately, I think for the U.S., it didn't get Costa Rica in the final. Um, Mexico got Costa Rica, which I think Honduras beat Costa Rica in that third-place game. So Honduras finished in third, Costa Rica finished fourth. I think it was on penalty kicks, if I'm remembering right. But I think, you know, when you think about these games and people, like you said, like to jump the gun of, you know, we're going to get C. Pulisic, Arena, Adams, McKinney, you know, the whole gang against Mexico. Finally, maybe they have a chance to win silverware. And that kind of pushes aside these countries that maybe aren't, you know, the massive juggernauts that we think of in CONCACAF, like Honduras, like Costa Rica. Um... But yeah, I mean, it was a nasty game, 1-0, late winner. It's good. Um, and these kind of competitions just win at all costs. Um, and hopefully that instills a culture of winning um, and getting to finals and beating Mexico in finals. But I thought, yeah, I mean, 1-0 is a win is a win. And I think with the game we're going to talk about in a second, that kind of puts that performance in the rearview mirror. Um, but yeah, solid Who's, win. Who scored that goal, Drew? I was trying to. Oh my goodness! So he wore a different. I'm gonna. I'm gonna try and pronounce his name in a second. But he wore a different jersey yesterday. Did you see that? It's like P. Fox yes. or something like that. Yes. So maybe. I, and so his Twitter now says, "Call me like P. Is it P. Fox? Is it Pefik? Like Pefok? P. Fox? I don't know. But at the time, I, I think it's like his mom's maiden name or something. Yeah. At the time, we thought it was Jordan Sebachu. So Sebas. Can't wait the goal, but. But he also like has Theodore as a name, and then there's another name as well. Like there, it's like basically a running joke at this point that he has like a million different names. Oh, it's Theosin. I'm sorry, not Theodore. Theosin is the other um, name that we've seen him called by. But he now wants it to be Pfock, um, according to his Twitter. So that kind of clears it up, I guess. Uh, I did see. His club, old boys, young boys, sorry, in um, Switzerland, they called him Jordy in a tweet after he scored that goal. So someone shared that, and they're like, oh, my God, we got another name for him. <laughs> so anyway, it was C.A. Bichu that, that scored that game winner. Excellent header from him, by the way, and a lot of good help from Brendan Aronson, um, which it's really cool that both of them came through in the Honduras game because they didn't really do anything in the Mexico game. Um, PFOC did not 
play that much. He subbed on towards the end. Brandon Aronson didn't even make an, make an appearance. But, Drew, let's talk about this game. I think a fun way to go through it would be to kind of talk our way through, like, the timeline of events. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with you first, right? So I'll, I'll let you know. I went over to a friend's apartment to watch this game. Um, I got to his place about 9, so we're settled in. We're watching the um, pregame show with uh, Clint Dempsey and Charlie Davies and Onyewu, um, Oguchi Onyewu and the wonderful Kate Abdo. She's awesome. Um, we're chilling. We're watching this. It got a little cringe at times. Uh, I like that they are all, you know, like, they're, they're really um, – they have good chemistry together, I think. Like, they're all really relaxed, but there were some things that were pretty cringy. But we're settled in. We're waiting for this game. Game kicks off. 70 seconds later, Mexico scores. Drew, what's going through your mind at this point? What are you thinking about as, as you know, freaking Jesus Tecatito Corona takes that ball away from Mark McKenzie, who just wasn't – he didn't really take it away. Mark McKenzie kind of just gave it to him right there, like 10 yards from goal. But what's, what's going through your mind – when Mexico scores on us in the first two minutes. Yeah, I was also at a friend's house. I was all the interns kind of hung out to watch the game, and we still don't know each other that well. We've been here for about a couple of weeks together, so we're still, you know, getting to know each other. And when that happens, this one dude just yells as loud as he can about, we're all U.S. fans, so the whole, like, house <laughs> just gets dead quiet. We're like, holy crap, that just happened. Uh, but what I was thinking that moment I thought just here we go again you know it was all this promise about the the team and the game finally getting a trophy to play for and that is how it happened at first I thought you know when it actually happened when Mark McKenzie gave the ball away I thought Stefan was going to make a save because I thought Stefan had it played pretty well I mean he had that near post cover and the dude just whacked it in the roof of the net as hard as he could and Stefan couldn't do anything about it um so I, I was just here we go again. Um, this is going to be bad. It's going to be a long one, which then, you know, we thought it was down 2-0, so I thought for sure this was going to be a long game. That was not going to go well. Um, yeah, that was, it was wild. It was rough. Um, what, did it, what did you think? What was the atmosphere like for you when he got that early goal? I think in the other second minute or something like that. Yeah, I mean, they scored that first goal, and all I was thinking was just, I, I was so dumbfounded. Like, that's the only way I can describe it. I was, like, in total shock, like, disbelief. Um, I personally thought we were going to lose that game one nothing. So when that goal happened, I was like, oh, my God, like, this is going to be the worst game ever. It's just going to stay one nothing until the end. And this is just going to be a really boring game. Like, they're going to they're gonna fight each other pretty hard as the game goes on, but ultimately nothing will happen. So I was not... I just, I just could not believe my eyes, man. I, I, I just, it was just like, how could you let this happen? How could you come out in a final? All, all of the players are talking about how important this moment is. They're talking about how disappointed they were in their own performances on Thursday night. And you come in and you concede within the first 70 seconds of this, this final. And yeah, just the way it happened was brutal. Playing out of the back, um... And so yeah, I just I just really couldn't believe it, and that that's what got me the most. It wasn't uh, like I said, I was expecting one nothing. I wasn't expecting it like that, <laughs> uh, 
I was expecting it kind of similar to when Jonah Dos Santos scored for Mexico in like the 60-whatever-th minute in the Gold Cup final the last time these two teams met. Um, and so for it to happen like this, I just, again, I was just utterly shocked and, and couldn't, couldn't believe the U.S. team would let it happen. But moving on in this game, things sort of settled down after that. I think they the U.S. tried to play out of the back a little too much for my taste. You know, No, 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 no. That's a, a mischaracterization. More specifically, I thought Zach Steffen was waiting too long with the ball at his foot. That was driving me insane. And it was one of the many things that didn't get talked about because so many insane things happened in this game. Um, but through those first like 20, 25 minutes or whatever, it, I just couldn't believe that we just had this mistake in the back and here you are waiting until the last possible second to let the ball leave your foot for a teammate. I just felt it was uh, an unnecessary risk given the implications of the match. Um, so about those 20, 25 minutes come, come by, uh, come and go, I should say. 27th minute, finally, U.S. wins a corner. Ball gets sent in by, I believe, Pulisic. Weston McKinney gets his head on it like Weston McKinney does because all that dude does is like jumps high and puts the ball on frame, hit the inside of the post, rebounded perfectly for Gio Reyna, who got the equalizer. Now that this equalizer happens, Drew, and the U.S. has kind of found their way back into the game, albeit, like I said, I still think they were wasting too much time when they were trying to play out the back and they didn't seem like they had a sense of urgency. Now, where are you at now that the U S is on the board and rain has got the equalizer. I was feeling a little bit better, obviously got the equalizer, but you know, I think it's worth, I think it was a couple minutes earlier. The U S Mexico looked like they'd scored their second. Um, it was called offside. They looked pretty close. I know some people on Twitter have made their takes about the call. So it was really, Phil, it looked like inches away from it being 2-0 Mexico. But nonetheless, VAR called it off. He didn't take a lot of time at the VAR screen either. That was a pretty fast check compared to what we've seen in the past. Um, which VAR, we'll talk about VAR more in this game. I'm very excited about that. But yeah, so Giorena got the equalizer, second goal of the game, tied at 1-1. Um, Weston McKinney dunked on Mexico like he does a lot in this game. He did a lot in that game. But I did, that was such bad set-piece defending on Mexico's part. When the goal happened, I thought Gio was offside. There's no way he's not offside. And then replay came, and there was a Mexican defender. So Ochoa was obviously on the line. There was a Mexican defender like right beside Ochoa. And there was all this space between the scrum around the six-yard box and the penalty spot, the goal. And there's just one Mexican defender just sitting right on the line. And there was all that space in between the one player and the scrum. And that's where Gio Reyna exactly was. And credit to McKinney, yeah, he jumped up. And the U.S. being phenomenal on set pieces was a theme in this game, I think, specifically Weston McKinney. But that was just really bad set piece defending that it fell right to Reyna. I think he had a ton of time on the ball. He hit it well. And Ochoa had a good game. But there was no way he could have saved that. So I was feeling better, still not confident. I thought there were more goals in this game, specifically given the really bad set piece defending we just saw from the U.S. NBC minutes later. I think it was a really fast turnaround from Mexico leaving Reyna wide open. But that felt like a you know, turning point that finally, you know, we've talked up all these young players with high ceilings and for good reason. You know, they're winning Champions League, they're winning German Cups, they're winning... Italian leagues, I think, yeah, they're winning leagues all the time in Europe, winning trophies, but they've never been able to do it as a collective unit for the United States. And to see them find the equalizer 
in a hostile environment. I know it was in the States, but every time I feel like Mexico plays in the U.S., it feels like an away game, just given the craziness of the United Mexican fans that are in the U.S. Um, in Colorado, I think they were playing where the Broncos play. Um, but yeah, getting the equalizer, it felt better. It felt like kind of this turning of the page that, okay, these guys can score. They can do it. But that that was really bad defending on Mexico's part, leaving a guy that wide open and kind of just ball watching, I feel like, because they saw leave McKinney's head. looked like that was going to be a goal. Um, and they just kind of took their eye off the ball and it fell right to Gio. And he had all the time and space in the world, I think, to find that equalizer. Yeah, I'm... I'm... I was very surprised that the the that Mexico also was so poor on the set piece defending, only because the U.S. minutes before was also really bad. Mexico was kind of like, "Hey, hold my beer." <laughs> How bad that set piece was. We got you one. Um, but yeah, just really cool moment for Reina, like you said, for these young guys to step up. And there was certainly more of that um, as we will continue to talk about this game. Uh, but. Personally, once Reyna's goal went in, you know, I was thinking, all right, we just need to make it to halftime at this point, kind of regroup a little bit, like let us, like we we need the break to kind of um, gain some composure back. But I, in hindsight, and especially with the way the second half played out and extra time and everything, I think the 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 kids, right, like these young U.S. players, they really they showed maturity. They showed maturity in making the mistake and then growing back into the game. Granted, if it hadn't been for that VAR, VAR call on the Mexico goal, I think we'd be talking about this game a whole lot differently because I think a 2-0 deficit would have been harder to overcome for the U.S. But that's not how it happened, and Reyna got that goal, and so the U.S. did go into halftime 1-1. Now, they come out of halftime. Nothing crazy happens for the first... 15, 20, 25 minutes. There were a couple substitutions. Uh, Timothy Weah came in in the 60th minute for Serginio Dest. I saw a lot of people questioning this move. At the time, it, it was a little strange because Dest is always one of those guys who's he's just dangerous no matter what when he has the ball, um, no matter how well he's been playing, no matter how well the team has been playing. So I think a lot of people were questioning why bring on Weah in place of Dest. I think it ended up being a really good decision because Timothy Wea played great, in my opinion. He was all over the field. Um, he brought a really good burst of energy to the U.S. squad. Uh, like I said, so he comes in the 16th minute. Nothing happens for about 10 minutes. And then Zach Steffen, without doing anything, hurts his knee. He, like, stepped forward to catch a ball that came in the box and then pulled up lame, fell down on the ground, Kept trying out that knee, and it was not happening. Where's your mind at at this point, Drew? Stefan is down with injury. He hasn't been playing that great. Uh, Thursday, right, he had a huge mistake. Luckily, Josh Sargent saved it. Um, and like I said, personally, I was annoyed with the way he was handling the whole playing out of the back situation. So where's your mind at now that Stefan's out? Still a 1-1 game, but there's only 20 minutes left of regulation. Where did this put you? Yeah, so I think I went through, like, stages of this injury, you know, when he, because like you said, it, like, came out of nowhere, really, I think. He got the ball, and if it was, like, a pass in the back or just an easy catch or whatever, but he came out to either roll, throw, or kick the ball out of the box, and it kind of felt like as he was, you know, taking his little 
steps, crow hops, whatever, to get the ball out of there. He just fell down. Um, at that time, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I thought, you know, maybe it's just like a cramp, just stretch it out, which I'm still not sure I know the full extent of the injury. Um, but at the time, when it first happened, I thought this is no big deal. Um, he's fine. And then it kind of, as every second happened, where he, you know, stayed on the ground, trainers came out. Um, obviously, those no-contact injuries with legs are pretty scary stuff because you never know what it's going to be. It feels like those injuries where you're just laying on your leg funny or awkward are always the worst ones. So as he kept staying on the ground, it became more and more prevalent to me that we might need to go to Horvath. Ethan Horvath is a backup, which he's been playing well. I think he plays in Belgium? Club Bruges. Bruges, yes. I think he was in Champions League. Obviously, they didn't make it as far as some of his other clubs, but we've talked about him a little bit on the podcast. Um, so, you know, as a shot to him pulling off the warm-up or substitute tops and putting on the goalie jersey, it became more and more like, okay, this isn't good. Uh, however long he's out for it, again, I still don't really know. Um, but at that point, I was feeling not as bad as I think a lot I should have, given the fact that, you know, our starting goalkeeper is I plays for Man City, plays for Man City. Um, but yeah, I think confidence in Ethan Horvath. I think the biggest thing, I think, was just the kind of mental leap that the Ethan was going to have to take, right? He's, he's not playing, probably didn't expect to be in the game. I feel like if you're a goalkeeper and you're not the starting lineup, you're pretty much, odds are you're going to be sitting on the bench for all 90, unless an injury or he just has a terrible game. Um, so he probably didn't think he was going to come on in the game, and he comes on against Mexico. I don't know how many times he's appeared for the U.S., but that is to jump in from nothing to Mexico in a final tied with, like you said, 20-something-odd minutes left is a lot for him to handle. But I wasn't too, not as distraught as I think I should have been, <laughs> if that makes sense. I was relatively confident about Ethan. Now, as we talk more about the game, I didn't think he would do what he did. Um, I was not that confident in him, but it was... Not too stressful of a situation. What was the room like for you when Stefan went? Because like you said, he tried to he tried to play it out a little bit. And I think even Weston McKinney came by and kind of put his arm around him and said, like, we appreciate it, but, you know, this might not be. And the trainer, like, had Stefan's arm around him, and they started to walk him away. So I think at that point I knew this guy was done. But when Stefan left the field and uh, Horvath had to come in, what was the room like uh, for you? Or, like, what was going through your head when that happened? It's it's hard. I'll be honest. It's kind of hard to remember where my mind was at in that moment. Just again, <laughs> that was the least crazy thing that happened in this game. Oh, but let, let's take a step back real quick. Halftime. Did you watch the halftime show? I no, I didn't. So we were yeah, I was with friends. We were talking, and none of us saw the dude just fall off. <laughs> and after the game, like I saw the clip on Twitter, and I said to everyone, like, how did we miss this? This dude just ran on the stage and because that's what the stream we were watching. I don't know what stream you were watching. But <laughs> yeah, so we, we were watching that because it was on that was the Paramount Plus um, broadcast because it was also on Univision. But we were watching this Paramount Plus broadcast, and I looked away in the very moment when that guy jumped over the railing. But I did see security, so I'm like looking and I'm like, wait, what's up with this? Like, did someone just like I was like super confused. It was only later on when I think it was Eric Winalda shared the clip and was like, is this guy alive? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm 
sure he's okay because we would have heard something by now if this dude was like seriously injured but the angle of that clip i mean it looks like he just said bombs away and then jumped over the edge um and again that was also something not that talked about because of <laughs> everything else in this game um but anyway so yeah when when stefan goes down like i just felt bad because Again, like, like you said, like Horvath's not expecting to come on. Like no backup goalkeeper is expecting to come on. They are probably like mentally preparing themselves just in case it happens, but they're not expecting it to happen. Also, I forgot that Horvath has aged. I'm used to him being like a 20-year-old kid, and he's not. He's 25 now. And like you said, he's been with Bruges, and he's done some Champions League games. So like at in in the moment i'm thinking oh my god this kid's coming on for stefan like what are we gonna do but in hindsight it's like no this is a bit more of a seasoned goalkeeper if i'm not mistaken he is the same age as stefan maybe a year younger so i'm i'm actually kind of with you i wasn't terribly stressed i at that point it was kind of like it is what it is it just sucks that stefan's gone down because he's such an important player for the team well about 10 minutes goes by nothing crazy happens in the next 10 minutes however it was nine minutes after the Horvath substitution that Diego Linez came on the field uh Linez has a little bit of history with the U.S. Uh, a couple years ago he I think megged Serginho Dest or maybe that was Corona I can't remember but Linez was um, embarrassing some U.S. players, and the only way they thought to get back at him was by Matt Miazga coming up to him and making this your short motion. So that's Diego Linez. He is a short, a short player. Um, <laughs> that being said, he got on the field for Mexico on Sunday night and one minute later scored. <laughs> Poor Tim Ream, dude. Tim Ream's like... He got cooked, man. <laughs> when I... So when I saw Reem in the starting lineup, I was like, that's it. We're not winning this game. Because, <laughs> like, look, I don't dislike Tim Reem or anything, but he's old, and the fact that we still have to play him sometimes, like, the center back depth has always kind of been a bit of an issue. It's a big issue right now without Aaron Long and Chris Richards. Um, and Reem's had to play left back, too, because of the left back depth not being great for the U.S. either. So at this point, he's playing left back, and... Props to Tata Martino and the Mexico uh, technical staff because they knew Reem was over there, and they am sure they told Diego Linus, hey, you see that tall ginger? Yeah, you just need to go after him. Destroy him. Exactly, and Linus complied. He got that second goal. It was short-lived because just minutes later, the U.S. came back again on a set piece, again with Weston McKinney's golden head, and he scores this equalizing goal in the 82nd minute, literally three minutes later. So, Drew, there's now been two goals in quick succession. Now where are you at after the U.S. getting the equalizer? What what do you take away from this moment for this team and for this specific player? Yeah, that I think was the first moment. Again, not knowing what the heck was in store for us later. But that was the moment I legitimately thought the U.S. might go on and win that game um, because he's um, – you have to imagine Mexico's deflated, right? They go up, um, and then yeah, and if you the corner that was conceded was a really bad corner to concede. I think I was rewatching it, and it was almost like the um, 
the 2014 Ghana corner that John Brooks scored to win the game. It was just like a mistake in the back. The Mexican player just had the ball, and I think he like it looked like he slipped or something. And he, they don't, no pressure. Do you remember that? Yeah, no pressure whatsoever. And he just kind of like accidentally kicks the ball out on that line, so they get a corner kick. And yeah, Weston McKinney, because he had a couple. I mean, he was what that post hitting the post on one set piece, and I think Ochoa saved him. I know for once, maybe twice on corners. So he was right there off getting a corner, a hat trick just off set pieces. Uh, but then he puts this one away. Kind of looks like it hits Ochoa and then maybe hits off of him, goes in the side net, something like that. But given the just weird way to concede the goal right after taking the lead, I thought that was the first time I was legitimately confident that the U.S. was going to win that game, whether or not it would be in 90 minutes or if they you know went to extra time. Um, penalties, I have no idea, but that was the first time I thought I was confident that the United States would win the game just because of the battling that they had to do, um, you know, with all the craziness that had happened. What McKinney celebrated, he runs straight to Greg Berhalter in the bench, and that kind of felt like a moment of unity that the team is finally clicking and they're getting goals or battling back, having gone down a goal twice, having come inches away from falling behind 2-0, and then your starting goalkeeper gets sent off, not sent off, that sounds bad, gets injured, has to be pulled on the replace of a backup. So to have kind of the wherewithal and the ability to bounce back and score on your biggest rival um, is phenomenal. And that, to me, that was the first moment really in a while, because I don't know the exact stats, but it's been a while since the U.S. has beaten Mexico at all. And then you talk about beating Mexico in a final, it's been even longer. So that was the first moment I was legitimately confident that the U.S. was going to win that game, just because I think Mexico, you just take the lead off a substitute, destroying Tim Ream. You have a weird corner that you can see just off the individual mistake. And the U.S. makes you pay for it. And credit to the U.S., good teams make you pay for dumb mistakes. I think we've talked about that a lot. And the U.S. did it. So that was, to me, that was the moment I, I first thought the U.S. was going to win the game. Were you content with that goal? Were you happy? Not content, but... With the United States drawing level with that, did you think that the U.S. had a legit shot to win that game after that, or did you think Mexico was going to come back? Yeah, so I actually have a, a similar opinion. Um, I'm kind of with you in that Weston McKinney's goal I, I did give me a lot of hope. Not the same kind of hope as you, though. I did not feel like the U.S. was going to win because of this, but I did feel a lot better about the situation. I think this was a, a real moment to where as a U.S. fan, we could look at this and say, oh, you know what? This team is is fighting for this. They're not just going to lay down and take this because it could have been really easy for these younger, inner, inexperienced players to you know, see that goal and then all of a sudden just collapse, right? That That could have very easily happened, but no. Instead... The players who needed to step up in this moment, you know, Zach Ste- or not Zach Steffen, sorry, uh, Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, right? Because Pulisic delivered that ball. McKinney scored that goal. Just a really cool moment. If it weren't for the other things that happened later in the game, I would have said that this was the moment of the game and that McKinney it probably should be the player of the game. But again, just so much happens. And if you didn't catch this game, 
you know, if you live under a rock or you just don't care about the U.S. or Mexico, then you're probably thinking, wait a minute, this is the 82nd minute. What more is there that could possibly happen? Well, <laughs> there's a lot more that could have happened. Um, the uh, Both teams kind of closed things out. I did appreciate Greg Berhalter taking off Tim Ream um, right after that goal because that meant Diego Linus couldn't hurt us anymore, um, specifically Tim Ream. They also brought on Tyler Adams, which this also got lost in the shuffle. So real quick, Drew, I want to ask you, what were your thoughts on Tyler Adams coming into the game? Because he didn't really, um, he didn't really steal any of the headlines like Pulisic and Reyna and McKinney and even some other U.S. players. But how good was it to see Zach, uh, Tyler Adams on the field? Yeah, it was awesome. Um, yeah, I don't think he played against Honduras at all, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and I don't know the exact number of the exact minute he came on, but he's just this kind of guy and player that every time he comes on the field, it's just this sense of calm and normality in midfield, which I thought, you know, especially kind of early on in the game, I thought the U.S. settled down as the game progressed, but it felt like a lot of the U.S., a lot of times when the U.S. had possession, a player would make a bad touch, make a bad pass. And it was really in the final third that I thought the U.S. was just sloppy and kind of ball is bouncing all over the place they really can't control the ball and you mentioned I think earlier playing out of the back sometimes when the U.S. would try to do that it just wouldn't work you know a player couldn't hold on to the ball long enough or fight off and earn possession back or things like that and Tyler Adams kind of just fits that description to a T in my mind that he's a guy that can come in get the midfield like you said he's not going to be you know smacking penalty kicks dunking on guys on set pieces but he's a very calming force in the midfield that's going to get the ball get to where it needs to be and uh, let other guys work. So when he came in the game, it was first off just happy to see him because there's always been you know, some injury talk about whether or not he's actually getting in the game. So it was good to see him step on the field and play. Um, and, yeah, he provided a sense of calm, I think, and just, you know, distributing the ball, passing it. I don't know his exact passing stats. Um, but, yeah, I was really happy to see him. I don't know how long exactly he was on the field. But anytime you have Tyler Adams come on the field, I'm super excited about it. Um yeah, what did you think about Adam's performance? Happy with it? Happy to see him on the field at all? Or what did you think about him getting on the game? Yeah, just really, really great to see him again. And like you said, I mean, he did bring like a kind of sense of calm in that they, you know, Greg Berhalter just stuck him in the back and said, hey, you're going to protect the back line from here on out. Um, the move that really piqued my interest from that, though, was Kellen Acosta going to left back. This is, again, a thing that wasn't talked a ton about. But here's a guy who was playing in defensive midfield the whole game. And then all of a sudden, he's back there at left back because now you have Tyler Adams in at defensive uh, midfielder. And that was also in place of Tim Ream, who came off when Tyler Adams came on. So it was, first of all, great performance from Kellen Acosta. He is proving his worth to this national team. And it's really, really, really great to see him fight his way back into the national team picture and then to prove why he got back anyway. So really, really good from him. Um, so I'm, I'm, my memory's a little fuzzy. Maybe you can help me out, Drew. I'm looking at the, the recap, the timeline recap, and it says there were 10 minutes of extra time <laughs> in the second half. Were, actually, no, I know the answer to this. Was this, I can't remember, was this because of players fighting each other? Was that what this was? Probably, I mean, there was that, maybe VAR checks? Or no? 
the yeah. I think it was players fighting because McKinney once again had someone put their hands on his neck, which I can't believe there are multiple Mexican players that have done that now to McKinney. Um, I think was this when Christian Pulisic was like almost getting dragged to hell? Like it, it looked that one Mexican player looked like a demon, like just like dragging him across the field before before a bunch yeah. of players stepped in. Like the AR had to like pull. I don't know which Mexican player it was, but they had to pull him off of Christian Pulisic. So maybe it was for all that. Either way, tons and tons of extra time in second half. Um, we finally get into extra time, and. Nothing happens in the first half of extra time, right? Those first 50, wait, let me make sure I'm seeing this, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, so nothing happens in those first 15 minutes. Um, DeAndre Yedlin had to come off, Reggie Cannon came in. It did look like for a second that both Yedlin and McKinney got hurt on the same play in different parts of the field, and that was really stressful to see. But the real... Real event came, real events, I should say, came in the second half of extra time. Christian Pulisic got the ball in the penalty area and was dribbling towards goal when he got sandwiched by two Mexican players. This drew a penalty, which Pulisic converted. We'll get to that in a second, but first I got to ask, Drew, did you think it was a penalty? Do you think it was the right call? Be, be honest, because I have an honest answer prepared. Oh, dang. B, I, uh, I, so my, the first angle they showed, I thought, no way, that's a penalty, it looked like he tipped the ball first, um, and then you get into the rules of penalties, and I don't think anyone in the world really understands the rules of penalties, but the first angle I saw, I thought, no, but then they showed, I think it was the angle more toward, like, we're staring at all three of their faces and it looked like a player kind of cut him off and then got the ball so i man i don't want to have u.s men's national team twitter on me because that's a terrible terrible place if any of them listen to this podcast i i could understand not giving it i think um especially the first angle the second angle i thought okay that that might be a penalty but if he didn't call it if he call if he did not call it a penalty, I wouldn't be that surprised or upset about it. Um, that's my final answer, Josh. Did you think it was a penalty? Okay, so I didn't think it was a penalty, even with the other angle, and I was really concerned that VR was going to take it back. Especially because even with that second angle that you're talking about, where we could see all three of, the, of their faces, it almost looked like the one player was bodying Pulisic off the ball and touching the ball at the same time. So I was very nervous as a U.S. fan that it was going to be called regardless, uh, or called back, I should say. Then they go to the VAR check to confirm whether or not it's a penalty. Two magical things happen during this penalty check, right? Tata Martino tries to get buddy-buddy with the ref and comes over like a dad and puts his arm around the ref. Automatic red. <laughs> Tata's gone. And then the second awesome thing to come from this moment was the, was the first down, that, that first down penalty call from the ref. When he, when he turned away from that monitor and stepped on the field and emphatically called a penalty, I jumped up and started yelling, like just out of pure joy. I was like, this... 
This is the best penalty call of all time. Uh, I went, and it was funny. No, we'll say that in a second. But yeah, I, I just that was a, a very very fun moment. Um, even though it was stressful at the time, because like I said, I, I thought it might be getting called back, uh, and I thought with that other angle there could be an argument um, made about um, you know whether or not they were the the player was getting to the ball first before Pulisic or knocking him over or what have you. Well. Come back into the game now. There are literally only five minutes left in this game, um, plus whatever stoppage is going to get added because the Vieira check took a while and it took a while to get Tata off the field. <laughs> um, but and then a word, I didn't see this, but I heard about it. Like Mexican players were like digging at the penalty spot, apparently. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So before Pulisic took it. So me and my friends, we play at this park nearby um, called Noonday Park, and. The, the the fields at Noonday are not good, okay? There's a lot of dirt patches all over this field. Um, and it's to the point where when you pass a ball to some to someone else on the field, right, the ball will bounce up and down because it's just hitting, like, these uneven patches of grass and dirt. So we call it the Noonday bounce. Well, the penalty spots are pretty chewed up as well. And... When it panned over to the penalty spot before Pulisic took it, like Drew was talking about, the Mexican players were, like, digging at the penalty spot. I was like, wow, what is this, noonday? Like, this literally looks like our park <laughs> from down the street that we play at. So that was very funny and could have ended up being really bad. But well, just want to say about the penalty real quick, perfect penalty. Perfect penalty. Yeah, that was awesome. Pulisic put it where not even Memo Ochoa was going to get to it. So really, really good job, especially for a player who – didn't do much during the game. He Mexico did a really good job of of, um, of of doling his impact on the game and really nullifying that threat. But anyway, back into the game. There's only like five minutes left. Mexican uh, The Mexican national team is throwing everything they can at the U.S. men's national team at this point. And sure enough, a ball gets played into the box, and I think a Mexican player either headed it down or kicked it. I can't remember what happened. And it smacks off Kellen Acosta's hand in the box. And at this point, the Mexican players are going crazy, asking for this handball. They're swarming the ref. We didn't get a great look at it until after he started to go over to the VAR to check it. I'll just say how I felt. I was like, this is the cruelest sport in the world. We are we are on a high right now after Pulisic's... Uh, penalty conversion which backtrack for just a second this is also when fans in the stands started throwing things onto the field specifically at the american players Gio Reyna got hit in the eye by a cup um they're just full bottles and cups being thrown out on the pitch it did give us that awesome picture of christian Pulisic shushing the crowd with the entire u.s men's national team behind him so that was cool but as well as the picture of Tata having his arm yes. around Greg Berhalter as the ref gives them both a red card. Well, not he gives. It looks like he's giving them both a red card. He's only yes. sending off Tata, but it was an iconic, iconic <laughs> images from this game for sure. All within like three minutes of each other too. Like those were all really close to each other. But uh, but anyway, so when they went to VAR and they finally showed us that the ball is like clearly smacking Kellen Acosta's hand, like. At this point, my stomach has fallen out of my body because it's, like, sunk so low. Like, I'm not feeling good whatsoever. I'm, this is, is just a cruel moment. How were you feeling as they 
then in turn called the penalty. So I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but I don't know if I thought it was a handball because it seemed very, if I remember you right, it seemed like he was really close to killing Acosta and didn't look like Acosta's hand was in a weird spot. Like he didn't have like his hands behind his back or like directly on his side or anything, but it wasn't, in my mind, it wasn't an in, in an unnatural position. So I wasn't, not sure if I'm sold that it was a handball, but then after the questionable penalty and the offside, being about half an inch offside, it looked like I wasn't. I thought it was kind of even, Steven, at that point. Um, we've seen that handball call before, but when that happened, I. Yeah, that is kind of just sucked. I'm not really sure how else to put it. It was. Again, I didn't think. So, try not to spoil. I didn't think what would what happened next would happen. Um, again, I was confident in Horvath coming off the bench. I was not confident enough to for him to face a penalty kick in that situation in extra time. I don't know how many caps he's had with the U.S., but it probably doesn't get much harder than that, right? A penalty kick against Mexico in that atmosphere. You've already seen players being hit with cups and beer bottles. I think even a Mexican fan smacked a Mexico player really good with a pretty full beer bottle, which that's a lot of money to spend throwing on someone, but that's a different thing. Um but yeah, a pretty hostile environment. So I I thought we were for sure going to penalty kicks, which given the, I think the performances up until that time, Ocho was just phenomenal. He made a couple of really good saves. So I was not confident. I thought he's going to convert. I forgot who took the penalty kick for Mexico. I thought he's going to convert. We're going to go to penalty kicks and Ocho is going to come up big like it always seems like he does for Mexico. So I was not... Just like I said, I thought the U.S. was going to win the game after McKinney scored that goal. The exact opposite was in this case when that penalty was awarded, not even before the ball got kicked. Um, then I think Kellen Acosta played some weird mind games. You know, some more fights were not scruffles. I have to say scruffles in every podcast. Some more scruffles were induced. Um, so I I thought we were. I thought the U.S. was going to lose that game. I thought he's going to convert it. Whether or not he converted like Pulisic did. I don't know, because like you said, Pulisic smacked it. He topped in upper 90. I don't think any goalie in the world would have saved that. But I was not confident. I thought this is Mexico's going to win again. We got closer, but we can't finish the job. Um, and yeah, but then good news after that, Ethan Horvath makes a save. He goes kind of low into the right. Horvath saves it. Josh, after he makes that save... Did you jump up, or what was? Did you think? Did you actually think the U.S. was going to win the game, or what was it like when he made that save? Because that was one of the. I think that save is going to be a pretty iconic moment in U.S. soccer history for a while. But what did you think after Hrath made that save? Yeah. So, so real quick before that, uh, Gordado took that kick. I caught for a second. Diego Linas was like sneaking up behind John Brooks and I think Helen Acosta. And Brooks just, like, elbowed Linez in the chest. Because, like, Brooks is, like, almost twice as tall as Diego Linez. So it's not like he was trying to elbow him in the chest. It just happens that, like, that's where Linez's body is compared to John Brooks's elbow. But Linez was, like, encroaching their space. And, like, I just saw Brooks just, like, nonchalantly shove him out of the way. So that was really funny to see. Full disclosure, though, I knew that since I was watching on a stream, I was a little behind Twitter. So I just sat there furiously refreshing my Twitter feed. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, I am like, refresh, refresh, refresh. And one person just put out Horvath and Caps. 
And I was like, ah, that's all I needed to know. And I put my <laughs> phone down and I watched the TV as he made the save. So I took some of the suspense out of the moment, but I still celebrated nonetheless because it was just a great moment and it was so cool with the fans being there and everything. I jumped up out of my seat and I kind of ran around the apartment a couple steps. So I missed like everything right after it. So when I turn around the TV and I see that like the ball is still in the U.S.'s um, final third, in their own third, and like Mexico is like still trying to score, I'm like I'm pretty stressed. But then once Horvath like collected the ball, and landed with the ball, like we all you know we cheered and let out a collective sigh of relief all at the same time. So it was a beautiful moment. Also worth noting that Horvath is from the Denver area, so not only did he sub into a game that he wasn't supposed to not only did he make this game-winning save as a sub against his country's biggest rivals but he did it in front of his home crowd he did it in front of tons of friends and family that were able to see him and that is just such a cool special moment no matter what happens with Ethan Horvath down the road you know whether or not he becomes a a, a consistent player for the U.S., whether or not he, he is consistently with the national team, you know, he's out of contract in Club Bruges, you know, whether or not he ends up staying there or finding another team, like, he will always have this moment, and I think that is just so cool, so special for him, um, just really, really great, but he makes the save, um, fans still threw some more stuff onto the field, and finally the U.S. came away with the win, and at this point, it's like 1 in the morning, I think. Uh, it was pretty – no, it was like 12, 12.30. Not quite 1, but it was pretty late for me. I guess for you, you hadn't even hit midnight yet. Um, no, it was about 11.30. I, <laughs> I was feeling good. We were so ready to go. Yeah, meanwhile, us on the East Coast here, we're like, oh, my gosh. Like we're, we're, I didn't even fall asleep for like another, I don't know, hour, hour and a half because I was just so jacked up on adrenaline, man. Like I just – you know what I did when I got home? I, I pulled up the, the extended highlights of this game, the 20-minute highlights, and just watched it again. Because <laughs> I was like, I need more. I need more of this, this thing. Um, so I think that's it. I think that's everything crazy that happened. I think we were able to cover all of it. Just a, an insane game. Definitely an instant classic. I think everybody's on the same page um, on, a, on that. Um, we're just about wrapping things up. Before we do, let's talk about Wednesday night's um, game because look at that. The U.S. has another game coming up. This is going to be their fourth game in 10 days. And all of this is to simulate... Is 10 days right? Yeah, 10 or 11 days. This is to simulate their World Cup qualifying windows down the road, which will have three to four games in each given window, which is a lot. So, Drew, they're playing Costa Rica in the friendly on Wednesday. Uh, we just found out before sitting down to record this that Brian Reynolds and Zach Steffen have been ruled out with bone bruises. Um, but also Matt Miazga left. He is getting married next week. So he is no longer with the team getting ready for that. Congratulations to Matt Miazga. But as a result, Nashville's own Walker Zimmerman is joining the squad. So we've got Zimmerman coming in. Um, I'm Personally, I'm curious to see if he's going to get any minutes. I think it's likely considering John Brooks has played every single minute of every U.S. game so far, and I think there's going to be some rotation um, to give some other players some minutes, I think. What do you want to see from this game? Selfishly, I want to see Randall Lee on Walker Zimmerman score hat-tricks for the sake of Nashville, but um, I want to see, you know, I think the Mexico game kind of provided this 
opportunity for of battling back and bouncing back and falling behind and coming back and eventually winning the game in a crazy fashion. You assume that there is not going to be this game is not going to be as crazy, although it's Concacaf and it might just be getting started. So who knows? Um, I think I want to see, like you mentioned, rotation because a lot of games in a short amount of time, and I want to see different players stepping up, right? I want to see maybe like you said, Walker Zimmerman could get in there. I'm not sure. You know, I mean, he's played with the national team before. I'm sure he's familiar with some of those guys. Um, and like you said, John Brooks has played a lot, uh, so maybe he gets a rest and figuring out who that other center back pairing is going to be, because I didn't really think, outside of John Brooks, I don't think it's really nailed down who gets that other center back spot right now. Um, if they play in a back four, which they went for a back four, back three, and then a back five, felt like it was a really fluid game against Mexico, but I want to see some New players, I want to see some rotation. I want to see players in their rotation stepping up. I don't want to have to go through the stress that we went through with Mexico. Um, I think if I could put a quantifiable measurement on what I want to see, I want to see squad rotation, and I want to see a comfortable 2-0 win over Costa Rica. Um, Again, Costa Rica is good. Uh, I think you know a game like that against Mexico for the U.S. perspective could take a lot out of you. Um, mentally, physically, in Costa Rica is probably pretty mad. They lost. They've lost two games in a row to Mexico and then to Honduras. So the U.S. is gonna have a play a team that is giving all they can have. Um, with Costa Rica being kind of pissed off after losing two games in a row, and the U.S. is just tired. So it's gonna be a tough t- t- test. Costa Rica is a good team. It's gonna be a lot. Um, and the U.S. I think hopefully knows that by now that Concacaf is wild. It is weird. There is not a region like it in the world. Um, but I want to see. A comfortable 2-0 win with squad rotation. Hopefully Zimmerman gets both goals. That would be awesome. But nonetheless, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I want to see a comfy 2-0 win with new players producing. Josh, what are you expecting? Or what do you want to see out of Costa Rica? Um, as we record this on Tuesday, they play Wednesday. So, one, I want to, one, I want to see Yunus Musa Because he hasn't played at all yet for... Well, did he come in against Switzerland? I don't even think he played against Switzerland in the friendly last week. So I want to see Yunus Musa. I want to see Daryl DK because he is with the team. Remember, we, he just wasn't on the roster for Nations League. And so Greg Berhalter pretty much all but confirmed that he would at least see time against Costa Rica, if not a start. So those are the two biggest things. I want to see Musa and DK. And at this point, yeah, you know, I probably want to see Zimmerman. Um, definitely want to see some more center backs in there just because of the need. But as for the result, I'm not quite on the same page as you, Drew. I don't necessarily want a comfortable win. I just want a win, period. This team has proved, I think, a lot of the doubters wrong, right? It was whether or not this team could flip a switch. We, we had this conversation last week after the Switzerland game. It was, do these guys know how to take it up a notch when they have to? And they definitely proved to us that they can. They're perfectly capable of it. They did against Mexico. I'm wondering if this team will be able to handle playing such an emotionally and physically taxing game just to turn around three days later and play still a very quality in-region um, in opponent in, in Costa Rica. There's a chance that they could lose, and it could be pretty ugly, honestly, if we're, if we're being very honest with ourselves about this. If that happens, I'm not saying it, it erases what they just did on Sunday night because, again, nothing will take that away from them. This is a statement win from the U.S. It is an instant 
you know, an instant classic as far as the U.S.-Mexico rivalry goes. But it would hurt what they've built up so far in this window, right, if they lose to Costa Rica. Even a draw, I think, would be disappointing just from the sense that this is basically the U.S.'s best team that we're putting out. So they need to be winning almost all the games. So I just want to win. I just want to win. I would love to see DK and Zimmerman and Musa, but at the end of the day, the win is what's important. Yeah, so the U.S. getting another shot at action on Wednesday as we're recording this on Tuesday. Um, a lot of some players missing out due to various reasons um, and some players stepping up. So we will see what happens on that end. Um, yeah, a lot of action in the international window. Um, as Josh's cat loves to make noise. Uh, we love cats here on the pod. Um, but yeah, we had... That's the murderer. The murderer cat returns. <laughs> there are a lot of cats. Um, I think there's like... My neighbor has a garden or something, but there are a lot of cats around my house here. And ever since that story, I'm always like, which one of you is going to destroy a chipmunk? Um, <laughs> the, the, the listeners don't know about that story because Connor took mercy on them and, and cut it out. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, but yeah, so... A lot of action going on. No MLS uh, as games come back, I think, um, in a couple, about a week. I think, isn't there a game on June 12th? Or am I just totally making that up? Yeah, but it's just Sporting Kansas City and somebody else. I don't even remember who it is, but that's like the only MLS game. So games, we have a couple more days until games come back. Until then we have U.S. national men's national team, U.S. women's national team, uh, Canadian men's national team, I think is playing right now against, I totally forgot who they're playing against. So a lot of action going on in North America with Nations League wrapping up and friendlies continuing to go on and we will keep you updated on the action as it happens both here on the podcast and on the website. So be sure to visit the website at MLSMultiplex.com as writers continue to crank out really awesome content covering international breaks and games. Um, be sure to follow the website on Twitter at MLS Multiplex. You can find us on Twitter, myself at underscore Drew Hubbard, Josh at Josh underscore Bowen, and even Connor at CWG Somerville as he continues just to take a little break from the podcast. No, we know he needs it, putting in a lot of work. Uh, so thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, visit the website, follow us on Twitter, and stay tuned because we will talk to you again next week. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.